it's Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is a Grammy-nominated musician and recording artist, a record producer, an actor and TV personality, and one of the most versatile and successful singer-songwriters of his generation. As an actor, you've seen him in films like Cheaper to Keep Her, The Sting 2, and North Dallas 40, as well as popular TV programs, The Muppet Show, Lois and Clark, That 70s Show, and King of the Hill. He's also starred on Broadway in the long-running Will Rogers Follies and made memorable appearances on dozens of talk shows, TV specials, and variety shows, and even starred in a good one called The Mac Davis Show, which ran from 1974 to 1976 and featured dozens of showbiz icons, including Bob Hope, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, and Dean Martin. Incidentally, that show also featured several of our podcast guests, including John Biner, Kenny Rogers, Jimmy Webb, and Paul Williams. But it's as a singer-songwriter that this man has made his most lasting mark, composing hit songs for everyone, from Bobby Goldsboro to Kenny Rogers to Dolly Parton, and penning the iconic tunes, Memories, A Little Less Conversation, Don't Cry Daddy, and In the Ghetto, for the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. He would later embark on a hugely successful solo career, selling millions of records and recording the hits, Baby Don't Get Hooked On Me, One Hell Of A Woman, It's Hard To Be Humble, Stop And Smell The Roses, and his signature tune, I Believe In Music. He's also appeared, I, BMI icon received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and he's been voted the Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Hell, he even has a street named after him in his hometown of Lubbock, Texas. Now, please welcome to the show an artist of many talents and a man who once had his head rubbed by the legendary Colonel Parker, the great Mac Davis. Oh, man, how, how do I follow that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to go now. That's your life story, Mac. Oh, wow. In, in, in one introduction. Gilbert, I'm only going to correct you because Kenny Rogers never did this show. It was Kenny Loggins. Okay. <laughs> Kenny Kenny Rogers did it in his heart. I'm sure he did it yeah. in his heart. Yeah. <laughs> and, 
That's a, and that's a perfect segue, Mac. Since we just lost the, uh, the wonderful Kenny Rogers, who was a friend of yours and a collaborator of yours, tell us something about him. Kenny was uh, one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. Uh, we all miss him. He he was uh, uh, what what would be the best? He was an entrepreneur. He wanted he wanted everything that he saw that was shiny and gold, and uh, he worked hard to get it. And uh, uh-huh. you know he had to have he had the best planes and the uh, he helicopters, office buildings, whatever he could get that was shiny and elegant. And he would uh, lose money on stuff and turn right around, get another hit record, and come back. He, his career went back and forth, and uh, I was just glad to know him. He lived right down the street from me. Oh, really? In Bel Air, in uh- California, for. A beloved guy. I worked on a talk show, and I, I worked with him twice. And I, I, I never met or encountered a celebrity that was more liked. Yeah, and uh, and 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 more li- more likable. He was a good guy. We both, uh, when we were getting started out, uh, uh, we played golf together. We were learning how to play golf together at the old par three courses out in California. And uh, I was struggling and writing songs. And uh, one day, I, I had been trying to write a song called "Something's Burning." for yeah. years and i actually I, I wrote it in the beginning um for elvis presley of course but, but this was i was only 16 17 years old and elvis never heard it but it would have been a great hit for elvis but i changed it over and over through the years because I, I knew that something's burning was a title it was a hook of a title and uh eventually uh um i played it for a guy named mike post and uh, Mike was producing a, a record in, uh, on Kenny, and they jumped on it, and it was really a big boost to my career right in the beginning. It really was, uh, uh, he was very instrumental in my career. And how did you get started? What made you interested in music and performing? You know, I, I, it's just a collection of, of uh, you know, growing up and, Loving music. My daddy would always ask me, have you learned to whistle yet? And I'd say, no. And he said, you got to learn to whistle, boy. People, <laughs> people, you know, it shows that you're a happy person and people like you. And so uh, I can remember when I f- first learned to whistle, there was a, a guy that worked for my daddy. And I'd, I I hung around a lot. Uh, he was a small-time building contractor and carpenter. And uh, I'd go, he'd take me out on a job with him. And there was a guy there named Alan Smith. Everybody called him Smitty. And Smitty could whistle the blues. And that was my first, you know, I'd heard, I'd heard uh, church music and, and that. And we had three records at home, uh, one of which was uh, uh, Old Ship by, uh, by Red Foley, an old country song. And the other one was Delicado by some orchestra. And the other one was uh, Blue Danube Waltz. And that was just, you know, I listened to them over and over. I wore out that old 78 RPM disc on that record player. And then I heard this fella whistling. You know, doing the blues licks and stuff. That's what I really fell in love with was the blues. And I found me a a 50,000-watt station down down near... Del Rio, Texas, or someplace, and I'd fall asleep listening to rhythm and blues music, and that really, you know, if I'd have had the pipes for it, that's probably what I'd be doing today. I'd still be 
still be singing uh, rhythm and blues music. It was in your heart, this music, from the very beginning. Yeah, it still is. I just had one of my bucket list uh, things. I just got a song recorded by Buddy Guy, who's a, a famous blues uh, guy from, from way back. And uh, that was a big thrill to me to get a, get a cut on a Buddy Guy album. It's called Bad Day. So you you described the first time you saw Elvis like it was practically a religious experience watching Elvis. <laughs> well, I was a teenager, and uh, he came to Lubbock and uh, performed, uh, I believe it was in the parking lot of the uh, Ford company there on the back of a flatbed truck. Is either in Lubbock or one of those little towns around there. And uh, I, I, you know, the first time I'd heard him, I, I got very excited because the guy sounded kind of like I wanted to sound like when I was a kid. You know, it was sort of rhythm and blues, but uh, sung by a Caucasian feller. And uh, I thought, man, I, this this guy's amazing. And I remember hearing um, That's All Right, Mama. And it was on New Year's Eve. I was about 14. And uh, my buddy and I spent the next day trying to find a, a record by by Elman Parsley. We thought his name was Elman Parsley when we heard the disc jockey say <laughs> And we were going all over town the next day saying, you got any record by Elman Parsley? And no. <laughs> and uh, finally somebody found it and said, you know, you mean uh, that's all right, mama. And we wore it out. And we got chased out. Back in those days, you could uh, sit and listen to a record and see if you wanted to buy it. And we would stand there. We stood there and played it over and over and over until they because we didn't have a dollar to buy it. So we got mm-hmm. we got run out of the store the next day. A buddy of mine named Billy Akins. And then saw him later there in Lubbock and uh, saw the girls going nuts and uh, totally going crazy. And this was in the very beginning. And uh, all the guys were pissed off and the girls were, were uh, going nuts. And I believe I went out the next day and... Uh, Bought me a shirt that kind of like his, I could turn the collar up on and start letting my hair grow into ducktails. And uh, I really, I had the bug. I loved, loved Elvis Presley, and he was all right with me. But I didn't meet him until many, many years later. But we, before we get to meeting Elvis, we we should also point out that another rock and roll god was from your hometown, was from Lubbock, Texas. Buddy a local a, a local boy made good, and he was a local celebrity. You guys, he would leave and come back to the town. Didn't you? Didn't he come back to town one day driving a big fancy car? Yeah, he did. But they, we, he was a local yokel when I knew him back in the days. He played at the skating rink there, which was right down the street mm-hmm. from my house. Uh, my my daddy had uh, bought a a motel there. Uh, called it College yep. Courts. We were right across the street from Texas Tech on College Avenue, and which is now right that that area now is is Mac Davis Lane. It's called in Lubbock. That's great. Yeah, but Buddy Holly at, at that time, you know, he wasn't Buddy Holly yet. He was just a local guy. But we loved him, and uh, you go to the skating rink, and for fifty cents, you could dance. Dance the last two hours of a Friday night and get your butt whipped all for the same 50 cents. <laughs> no. When they they show it on the movies and stuff, you know, the girls are out there on their roller skates with their little poodle skirts on, and, and everybody's got their skate. Well, they didn't do that. You took your skates off at 10 o'clock when Buddy's show started because <laughs> it's not a good idea to try to fight with roller skates on. So that was a pretty rough, pretty rough start. And it was years, 
years later that he came back to town. He had left there and went to New York, and uh, suddenly that'll be the day came out and became a huge hit. And uh, he showed up in town, and I was sitting on a, my front steps at this motel where I lived, and uh, he came driving by slowly, doing probably 20 miles an hour in a brand-new black-and-white Pontiac Catalina convertible. There's a couple of big, nasty girls up there with him, and I thought, yeah, this this could be me. I could do this. So between him and Elvis, I had a good start. I had a good start in the business when I, you know, somebody to to uh, to want to fashion myself after. Well, those were two good starts. So it was mainly girls that got you into music. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, that well, story seems to be true for a lot of people who went into music, who went into pop music or country music or rock and roll. Well, that's uh, that's uh, seems to be a prime motivator. Yeah, they were there. They were absolutely there. But uh, that wasn't my motivator, really. I just wanted to write songs and I wanted to have people sing them and I wanted to sing them myself. And uh, I, You know, I, my daddy made me sing in church. And it really wasn't my thing. When I was a kid, uh, I, I was like a soprano, you know. I had to sit in the, up there with the uh, choir at church, and I refused to sit with, with the sopranos because they were all ladies. And uh, so I would sit in the bass section and sing the bass parts uh, uh, an octave up. So then, And they didn't like me up there very much either, but <laughs> singing their parts in the soprano. But, um, you know, that's where you learn. You, you started writing songs at, at the tender age of 14, Mac? Well, um, actually... Uh, I, I know you say you were a late bloomer, that you didn't have a hit till 28, but how, how long were you at it before the breakthrough? Well, quite a long time, really. Uh, I, was, uh, I was making up songs from when I, first learned how, when I first learned how to whistle. I started making up uh, melodies and stuff. Started putting words to him probably around eleven or twelve, and I can remember the first wow. song I ever put words to was. I got my guitar here, so I'll throw this at you. It's terrible, but it's uh, it's it is what it is. Can you hear that? Yeah. Come back again some other day. If it ain't that, that do do do. Please leave me alone with my blues. That was it. Anyway, I have a hard. I can't hear my guitar with these headphones on. So I know. I'm sorry so, about that. Well, that's all right. So I, we learned a lesson early in the show. The way we're forced to record in the in the in the COVID era. Yeah. Can I put you on the spot, and we'll go back to your church days. Can you sing any of what you used to sing in church, uh, just a sample? Oh, man. Right now. I can sing it a cappella. We used to. I, I love yeah. the musical songs. I, I went to a Presbyterian church and uh, really liked it because all the, you know, the, the Catholics and um Lutherans and they all sing these dirges 
You know, they don't, they, they're great gospel songs. They're not gospel, they're great religious songs, I suppose. But um, I always liked, um, oh, let's see. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Those had pretty melodies to them, and they were uh, very singable. I got I got a big kick out of, of singing in church, but uh, most churches, you know, it's <laughs> it's like you know, like you're at a funeral or something. Gilbert, you didn't sing. You didn't sing in temple, Gilbert. <laughs> Onward Christian Back. Soldiers, that was a good one. Everybody Onward Christian that. Soldiers, yeah, that's a standard. Oh, yeah. can I hear some of that? Uh, onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. Mac, Mac, why was Nancy Sinatra uh, pivotal in your early career? Well, she was connected to uh, uh, one of the guys I met early on out in the... In, after I'd moved to California. At that point, I met Billy Strange, who uh, was uh, uh, actually one of the original members of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, he was a great studio player, and uh, he was involved with Nancy Sinatra and with uh, Lee Hazelwood. And he was, uh, on her first hit, uh, it was his... His production idea, he was the guy that went ding, 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 Oh, on these boots. Yeah. Oh. That was Billy Strange. That's great. So Billy would come by the office once in a while looking for material for her. And I would, I'd play him stuff that we had, but I also would sneak a song or two of mine in there every now and then. And he, he liked some of the things that I, that I wrote. And at some point, he says, he came to the office one day and had a serious discussion. He says, uh, said, Nancy uh, is going to start a publishing company. And I have an opportunity to get a song on uh, an Elvis Presley movie. Because uh, Nancy had just finished doing a movie with Elvis. She introduced Billy Strange to Elvis. Uh, and he hooked him up to, uh, to score that first movie, and uh, Trouble with Girls, I believe is the name of it, with the subtitle, and How to Get Into It. And uh, I believe that was the movie. But uh, at any rate, I said, Bad, I'd, I'd love to. He said, we can get a song in there, you know. Well, I had a song that I'd written in hopes that Aretha Franklin would record it, and it was called uh, A Little Less Conversation. Sure. And it was uh, a perfect song for her. I still to this day wish that, that I had found some way to get it to her to record it. But uh, I did okay with it anyway. It came out uh, with the movie as, as one of the uh, tracks from it. And and Elvis uh, loved the song so much that uh, he started asking me for songs for uh, for his next album. And it got in the top 40 or something. It wasn't a real big hit. But uh, he hadn't had a number one record in like eight or nine years. And uh, so they asked me to send him. He was going to go to Memphis. He was he was irritated that the, that the Beatles had become the number one artist in the world. And, and he had dropped to, you know, somewhere just in the top ten. Because they were just releasing 
nothing but movie music and I'm not going to knock it, but it just wasn't what was happening in pop music. And sure. So at any rate, he was looking for new material, and I just happened to get on that bandwagon. I mean, it's a, without a doubt the luckiest break that you can imagine. An old country boy from Lubbock, Texas, getting on that bandwagon and riding those coattails because uh, that's when he decided that he was he was going to make it big again. And this was uh, 1968, 69. Sure. That record came out and did pretty good. He uh, um, had Billy call me up. I think up, the movie said, was Live a Little, Love a Little, Mac. Yeah, Live a Little, Love a Little. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it was. A little less conversation, a little more action All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me A little more bite, a little less spark A little less fight, a little more spark Close your mouth and open up your heart And maybe satisfy me Satisfy me, baby Baby, close your eyes and listen to the music Dig to the summer breeze It's a groove and I can show you how to use it To come along with me and put your mind at ease hey! Less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. A little less fight, a little more spark. Set your mouth and open up your heart. And baby, satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. Come on, baby, I'm tired of talking. He loved that kind of song, and uh, uh, he decided they made a deal to go to Memphis with Chips Moment and cut an album, the, Mem- the Memphis album. And they asked mm-hmm. me uh, if I had anything. And at the same time, I was writing a song for uh, for his comeback special called Memories that I yep. wrote uh, wrote in Billy Strange's uh, garage, as a matter of fact. He had a little office out there in his garage out in the valley. And uh, I spent the whole, I had to have a song written by the next morning. And I started about 6 o'clock in the evening, and by 8 o'clock next morning, I had written Memories. And, about uh, that. Yeah, it was amazing. And we and, made and, he, and Elvis and Steve Bender put it right into the special. Yep, yep. They, they uh, kind of edited it a little bit. Uh, there was one of the verses got left out. kind of irritated me, but, you know, he, he actually two verses got left out. He just cut the... Sang the first verse over and over, but it still became a top ten record. It was a hit record, and uh, um, back in the day, of course, I'm going by uh, Cashbox instead of Billboard because I was always one. Uh, I'd get to number two on Billboard and number one on Cashbox, uh, but uh, it's neither here nor there. It was a pet, it was a pet peeve of me. That's all. A, a little less conversation was kind of the breakthrough. It was a breakthrough, and then memories really took off with the special. Right. And then uh, right. they decided to do this album in Memphis, and uh, they called and asked if I had anything for it. And uh, I sent them a tape out there that had 19 songs on it. was everything that I had written. And the first two songs were In the Ghetto and Don't Cry Daddy. <clears throat> so uh, we got lucky there. When you're working with Elvis, tell us a little about the Colonel. Yeah, we 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 alluded to that story in the opening, Mac, about him calling you over. Well, that's uh, he. Uh, I got invited uh, 
to come and watch them when they when they uh, when they did uh, little less conversation in the movie, and it was it sounded like a fun deal. It was a pool party and lots of extras and good looking girls and all this stuff, and so I couldn't wait to get over there. And I went and uh, had a pass to get on the lot, and uh, at any rate. Uh, I went in there and they had a, there was a row of old theater seats that had just been ripped up from the floor of some unfortunate theater. And uh, uh, right in the middle of it sat Colonel Parker. And they had a little hassock there that he could put his feet up on because these things didn't have legs on. They were just sitting on the floor of these chairs mm-hmm. uh, in the, on the sound stage. And um, uh, I was standing there watching the thing, you know, watching them do the thing and Every time in those days, it took forever to loop something into a show. So they had already filmed it, but to loop the song part in there, you know, you had to lip sync it. So he's walking around through the deal. And in those days, you didn't have digital uh, equipment. And in order to rewind a song, you didn't even have double speed rewind, which you did in the studio. They had to fit the cogs into the little holes in the tape and I guess it was three inch tape or something like or maybe bigger I don't know but he would get the giggles and mess up and they'd have to rewind it well if he was two and a half minutes into the song it took two and a half minutes to run it back to rewind it to start over so he would leave and walk over and start singing gospel with the with the guys you know ganged around the piano Mm-hmm. And sometimes that would last 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever. So it, it just took forever is what I'm trying to say. And at some point, I was standing there, and Colonel Parker says, Hey, boy, are you the boy that wrote this song? And I said, Yes, sir. Said, What's your name? And I said, Mac Davis. He said, Come over here and let the colonel rub your curly head. And I had a, <laughs> I had a big old afro back in there. I was one of the, the first Caucasian guys to to have an afro in, uh, in the business anyway. And uh, I kind of looked over. I didn't know what he was talking about at first. And I looked over, and Sonny West and Red West were sitting there. These are a couple of the Memphis Mafia guys, and they gave me this nod like, not a bad idea. Better better come on over. So I walked over there, and he said, bend over. And I bent over. He rubbed my head, and he said, now you go tell everybody that Colonel Parker rubbed your curly head. You're going to be a star. I love that. True. And uh, that was my first meeting with him, and they were bringing him food and and drinks and, you know, whatever. Uh, He was the boss. He was, it was obvious that he was the the man. Many years later, uh, after Elvis passed away, uh, I left, uh, I'd been working at the MGM Grand for 12 years. uh, Not solid. I mean, I, I, when I went to Vegas, I played the MGM Grand. I wasn't in residence. Mm-hmm. It sounded like I was saying I was in residence, but I would work there uh, four to eight weeks a year. And uh, after 12 years, uh, I moved over to the Hilton, which was where he worked. And uh, on opening night, the guys came in, the entertainment director came in and says, uh, Colonel Parker's here and wants to see you. And I said, what? He said, yeah, it's the first time he's been in a hotel since uh, Elvis passed away. And he wants to bring you something. 
So I was like, oh, my God. He brought in a great big package that was about four by four or something like that, four by six maybe, huge, wrapped in brown paper and very clumsily done because it had bulges in it and everything. He tore the thing open. He says, this is, Mac, this is my favorite painting of Elvis. I've had it hanging in my office for for years and years and years. And I said, uh, wow. And we get all the brown paper off of it. The bulge was a, it was around the frame. The frame was plastic. They made painted to look like wood, sort of. The lamp was connected to it. It was all part of the frame. Still had a cord hanging off of it to plug it in. And it was a copy of a velvet Elvis painted on plywood. And wow. it was kind of warped and, and all that stuff. And he had taken, Colonel Parker had taken a, a felt-tip pen and wrote uh, to Mac Davis, whose curly head I once rubbed and told was going to be a star, but I knew he was going to be anyway. Love the Colonel. And he had, and uh, it was like, it was, it was like, uh, I don't know how to put it. Uh, you got the, on one hand, a, a wonderful thing to do, and on the yes. other hand, a real piece of crap. You know, that was, that was, that was awful. That, that he, you know, even if it had been an art piece, a nice art piece, uh, he would have ruined it with the felt tip pen. You know, was writing on it. But uh, at any rate, it's a great, it's a true story. And all the guys in the band thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever seen, as they all I had them that on the backstage. Wild. Yeah. So. But at any rate, uh, when you wrote in the ghetto, uh, Mac, did you pitch that? Is there a story about you pitching that to Sammy Davis Jr. originally? I did at one point, but uh, yeah. uh, we were trying to figure out uh, what to do with it. We, I, we wanted because Elvis had already done it, had recorded it, but we thought that it would mm-hmm. be a good idea to get a person of color to record it because sure. it was a very meaningful song and it was. Very important to me that that I that I got acceptance, you know, for for having written that song, and and uh, and it was a tough sell, so we thought well, we'll find somebody that you know can do it, and uh, took it to Sammy and he recorded it, but it was you know it was a Sammy Davis record by the time we got done with it, and uh, nothing really happened with it, but I later uh, I was bemoaning the fact to. Uh, to uh, oh my gosh, Atlantic Records. I'm I'm having a a blank. Uh, guy that ran Atlantic Records for all those years. Uh, oh, Jerry, Jerry Wexler. Jerry Wexler. Gosh, I'm sorry. Senior That's moment. All right. Senior moment. No worries. But anyway, I was at a party and I was talking to him about the song, and I said I sure would like to get a an R and B record on this. He says, Well, he says uh, I've got somebody you can do it with, and. Uh, now I'm having another senior moment. It was uh, the king of 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 R and B, the huge, huge, obese uh, guy. Was the that was a oh uh, it was uh, a, uh, Solomon Burke. Solomon Burke. I why I could not think of his name. It's beyond me. I'm ge- I'm guessing lucky today, Mac. Well, you are. Well, I hope you've read it someplace. <laughs> At any rate, uh, he says we got. A, got got a record we need to cut on him, and how'd you like to produce it? 
out of nowhere, and I'd never produced a record in my life. I kind of helped produce my stuff, but I'd never really sat down and produced one. And uh, he he said he's coming up just in a couple of weeks, and that'd be a great idea. The company, we'd really get behind that. So uh, I said, yeah. I got all the information and uh, called. Uh, they gave me the numbers and all that stuff, and I called uh, Solomon Burke up and went over to his house and played the song for him and got in the studio with him and uh, cut a great track. But Solomon just walked I bet. walked all over me. <laughs> he was he was <laughs> definitely too much for me to handle. Solomon and he he uh, he took the song which uh, as as you know it's a, a, a sensitive it takes kind of a of course you know some sensitivity he put that Solomon Burke uh, preacher thing on it and was singing, you know, uh, a poor little baby child is born in the ghetto. And uh, I was like, can we maybe tone that down just a little bit? And he says, I, oh, am wow. Sol- <laughs> I am Solomon Burke. And he said, and so I'll be honest with you, it, uh, uh, it, it didn't become a hit. But you know what? I still, it's one of my favorite experiences getting to work with him. And when I went to his house, this is a true story. Uh, I forget who it was. Some Somebody that worked for him answered the door. And uh, I went in and he says, you can wait over here. This is where he takes visitors. And uh, there was a room off to the side that had church pews on either side of the room that had been taken, just big, long pews. No seats in the center or anything. It had a stage about two feet high that and the back end of it, and a throne with red velvet, you know, red velvet uh, upholstery. And it was gold, (laughs) gold throne, seriously. And when he came out, he walked out and sat down on that throne and says, let's talk. And I was like, oh, man, I am totally outclassed here. This is for sure. So that was the way he, uh, that's the way he lived, I guess. But he was... uh, I'm embarrassed that I couldn't think of his name, but I am having a, I'm trying to remember a lot here. Yeah. That's a song that you had been nursing along for years, The Vicious Circle. And people, our, our listeners can read about the history of that song and that it's also, it, that it was also inspired by a, by a childhood friend. Yeah. It's a I sweet story. About Smitty, I talk about Smitty, the blues whistler. It was his son. Yeah. Smitty Jr., yeah. everybody called him. I don't even remember his name. He just called him Jr. or Smitty. Smitty Jr. and uh, he, uh, I always felt that he had in, kind of inspired us because at the end of the day, you know, we'd both be playing out there on the job site or whatever, and um, uh, at the end of the day, he had to go live in uh, a ghetto, and yeah. which we didn't call them ghettos back then; it had other terms for them, but it was a a dirt street ghetto is what it was. There wasn't a square foot of of um, yard out there that didn't have a broken Coke bottle or something in it. And I could never figure out why I got to at least have a sidewalk and I could sit out on the front porch and watch the cars go by, you know, and watch the crowds at the, at the uh, Jones Stadium in Texas Tech that was right across the street from my house. And, and he had to live a different way. I always felt like it was not fair. So uh, at any rate, it's neither here nor there. Yeah. I don't know. We lost touch. Beautiful song that still holds up uh, all these years later, and it's and it's uh, you know sadly, 
it, uh, it, it, it never ceases to be topical well, or, timely, or timely. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And people, very, I know there's, a, a, there's a, um, spots on, on YouTube uh, called First Hearings or something like that. I don't know what it is, but it's very interesting. And somebody directed me to it the other day, and it's uh, people hearing songs for the first time. They were old mm-hmm. classic stuff or whatever, and uh, they had they were giving it to people of color who had their little blogs and their own little uh, shows and stuff. And I went and watched it, watched people hearing Elvis Presley sing in the ghetto, and this is recently, and uh, literally some of them broke into tears. Wow. So it was, uh, you know, a different time and what have you, but uh, it was very moving for me to see that. Oh, that's, that's nice. I'm glad you saw that. It's a timeless piece of work. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. Gilbert, I'm going to read something from our friend Steve Bender. You remember having Steve on the show? Oh, absolutely. We had Steve on here about two years ago, Mac, and, and I wrote him and I said, hey, Mac Davis is coming on with us, and I know you you directed Elvis's comeback special, but he also worked on the Mac Davis show. Yes, he did, one, one season. And he says, when it comes to Mac, I can only think back when we worked together at NBC, and those were some of the greatest memories of my career. I always thought that as successful as Mac was, and he was very successful, the public never realized just how talented he was. He could do it all. We used to watch him literally take, the audience would throw three or four words at him on the spot and ask him to use all the words in a song, and literally, in a minute or less, the man would come up with a complete song using all the words. Genius. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't call me a genius, it's just what I did, but it, uh, yeah, that was fun. It was one of the the toughest things I ever did, but at the same time, it was fun. I always looked forward to it, because we'd get some crazy song titles, and, uh, you know, somebody always jump up with something that was a real challenge. I know the very first one I did, they asked me if I, my manager asked me, he was really responsible for for putting it in, in my show. And it's also, it's the first thing people ask about that, that are old enough to remember the show. And then they, they sure. say, did you really write those songs? And I said, yeah. And I do some of them. I remember a lot of them. Uh, uh, that I that I did the, the very first one I did was a little girl, thirteen years old, redheaded, freckle faced, and she says, uh, "I want you to write a song called Pink Polka Dots on My Nose." And uh, <laughs> that was typical too of the songs I was the titles I was getting. But I said, "Pink polka dots on my nose, on my chin, a great big freckle." They really not make my daddy mad, but a hickey on my nickel. <laughs> it took them a while to catch on too when I first did it. The I first love time. it. What what about what about cross-eyed cowgirl? Oh, that's my favorite, really, probably all-time favorite. The gal that stood up, she was uh, uh, obviously uh, uh, at that time it was the women's lib movement was was heavy duty, and and they always had. Several of these people in the audience, and uh, you could spot them. You know the uh, uh, oh, combat boots, and and uh, <laughs> you know all kinds of uh, 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 wear like that, camouflage wear, whatever. But she was out there, and uh, she stood up and 
militantly says, uh, I want you to write a song about burning your bra. And uh, is this the song you were thinking about by any chance? At any rate, uh, I said, uh, oh, you want, oh, you wanted Cross-Eyed Cowgirl. Cross-Eyed yeah, this Cowgirl, was different. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. different. That's okay. Well, that one, that one was, uh, I wrote a song called My Girlfriend Burned Her Bra Today. It really was a shame. Cause she ain't exactly Dolly Parton. That sucker hardly made a flame. <laughs> I love it. So the cross, the cross-eyed cowgirl thing was uh, a little bitty lady, uh, sweet-looking uh, gal, stood up and she had a. She was a character, obviously. She had on. Uh, a red plastic cowboy hat. You know, one of those cowboy hats they used to make that was supposed to look yeah, like sure. straw, but it wasn't really. And she had on uh, uh, big, thick glasses. She had on skin-tight pants and with white pants and a white cowboy shirt with red piping on it. I can remember like like she's standing here. And she stood up and says, I want you to write a song called I'm in Love with a Cross-Eyed Cowgirl. And uh, I won't describe her any further to you, but I don't think I have to. She, she fit the part. So I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I wrote, uh, I wrote, uh, I'm in love with a cross-eyed cowgirl, but I guess I'm gonna have to say goodbye, cause I'm just an old cockeyed cowboy, and lately we ain't seeing eye to eye. I know the punchline ahead of time, Mac, and I still love it. Thank you. Should we ask Mac to write a song for us? I think he'd be putting him on the spot. Can he? Can can you come up with a spot on the on a song on the fly about Gilbert, Mac? Oh, Gilbert, Gilbert. What rhymes with Gilbert? I think orange. I think orange rhymes with. The, the, the nut the nut Filbert rhymes with Gilbert. Oh, the nut Filbert. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I wrote one the other night. Though, uh, what did I write? Uh, oh, we were having dinner with, with this uh, one of the uh, people I work with. Her her niece uh, was with us, and we were trying to explain about writing songs. And I would tell uh-huh. her she couldn't figure out what I was talking about, really. And I said, well, somebody would give me a funny title, and I like to play with words, and I would like, put another meaning you know, I'd use them a way that you wouldn't expect and put them kind of like a limerick. Sure. And uh, uh, at that time, the waitress walked up to us, and it was like a godsend. She says, um, y'all, have, y'all need to try our peanut butter pie for dessert. And I went, now there's something I could write a song about, peanut butter pie. And by the time the waitress got back with, the, with our dessert, I had written a, I call my girlfriend Peanut. She's the apple of my eye. She's real good looking, but she ain't good cooking. Ain't nothing wrong with peanut butter pie. <laughs> <laughs> another one you have to think it's about a, for a minute. It's a uh, yeah. It's a, it's a great talent to have, Mac. Before we jump off the Mac Davis show, do you have any memories, even if it's just one? I mean, you you did a bicentennial medley with the great Dean Martin. Any, um, any memories of any of those people? Uh, Ray Charles was on there. Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, Red Fox. And my one of my favorites, Henny Youngman. Uh, you work with Henny Youngman, too? Buddy Hackett? Oh, yes. Henny opened for me. He was one of my all-time favorites to work with. I loved 
I love, and Godfrey, this is why I like you. I love those old uh, uh, comedians from, uh, what's up there in New York? What's it called? Oh, the Borscht Belt? uh... Yeah, the Borscht Belt. I I love that kind of humor. And Henny Youngman, uh, he just was so corny and and so hilarious with one line. I love him. (laughs) He actually actually opened for me. Henny opened for me. Uh, uh, who else opened for me? Some, some great Sammy Shore opened for me. Oh, Sammy Shore. Yeah. yeah. Lost I him, feel, lost I him recently. He, I know. God love him. He yeah. used to uh, open his show with playing a trumpet. He would come out and play some kind of stuff on his trumpet. And I'd go out and watch him uh, before I went on. And somebody had given me a... Uh, a uh, gift backstage it was a whole bunch of you know picnic stuff you know cheeses and and sausages and all uh-huh. kinds of things like that and it had some um, uh anchovy paste in a tube which i couldn't even imagine eating some of that stuff anchovy paste and then i thought this will be fun so i went out and got his his trumpet backstage and I took the mouthpiece off of it because he would always hold that <laughs> mouthpiece up just before just before he went on. He would get his mouthpiece out and he'd go <laughs> spit through it, you know, and loosen his lips up. So I just filled that mouthpiece full of anchovy paste and then put it back. In. It's an awful thing to do, but, you know, you get bored on uh, when you're out on the road doing stuff and you, you do things like that. God love him. He How went about out there Buddy Hackett? What, wasn't he somebody that you that you worked with? Yeah, I, he was in, one of the Vegas? first people I worked Vegas with. I opened for Buddy Hackett. Buddy was uh, the funniest, uh, probably the funniest guy I ever saw in my life. I mean, he he uh, would start off the evening being funny and ended up being funny. And uh, I would watch him from the sides every night. I'd stand out there and, sh- and you know I'd finish my little forty. Or I, back then I was only doing like. 30 minutes or something, 35 minutes. And I've got a story about that, too. I, uh, but anyway, I would watch his show, and I learned so much about comedy and timing and uh, working on the fly when something would happen. You had to, you know, come up with something, make people laugh. Well, I learned a lot of that from him. My first show with him, this is true, uh, I went out on stage, and it was cold. It was like 50 degrees out there. You could see your breath almost. And uh, I had people were sitting, and people that knew him showed up with fur coats on, sitting in the audience. And, of course, this is a long time ago when people dressed up to go to Las Vegas. But at any rate, I walked out on stage and uh, did my opening number, and then when I started to talk to the audience, I said, man, you can hang meat in here. It's cold. And, you know, I got a few little laughs and everything. And uh, went on and did the show. Between shows, a guy from the casino comes in, and it's one of these guys with three necks, you know what I mean? Like a, like a, stack, like a stack of pancakes and big meat, big catcher, catcher's mitts for hands. He says, uh, I need to talk to you about something. As you know, Buddy is a little bit on the obese side. Uh he he tends to he tends to perspire profusely. He says, 
So let's don't make any funny remarks about the temperature on stage because he keeps it cold like that so that he doesn't perspire. You get what I mean? I said, oh, yeah. He says, and another thing, you're doing 27 minutes. You did 30. You're contracted to do 27. That's about $20,000 a minute in the casino. So do your 27 minutes. There's a clock right there in the floor. You get it? Capiche? Whatever. I said, yes. Yes, sir. He says, he says you're a good boy. So later I went into Buddy's. I went into Hackett's dressing room between shows. Uh, he'd asked me to come over, and I went in and sat. And I didn't mention it in the thing. He didn't mention it. He actually pulled a, um, what do you call the little the little baby pistols out of you that they used to oh, use? Oh, yeah. He carried a piece, sure. Uh, 22? Uh, no, it was a 38, but it was tiny. Wow. The Derringer. A Derringer. Yeah. And he pulled that thing out, and he says, i show you something. He had a, a holster on his calf, and he wore these big old calf tans. You remember that? He he was to relax. He wore caftans. And he pulled his, his skirt up there and he took that Derringer out and he says, Watch this. And there was an Alf Landon for President button on the wall of his dressing room. He shot that thing, bam, like that. And my ears, my ears are still ringing. Literally, my ears are still ringing. I can still smell that, that gunpowder smoke. He says, You know, he says, uh, when I was your age, I would have hit that thing right dead center. And I said, well, cool. <laughs> no, I was so, I didn't know what to think. And later on, I uh, I uh, just didn't say anything at all. So later on, I did my show. I watched that floor, and I saw 27 minutes come up. I was out of there. So I went back. I go back. I get in the wings to watch him do his show. And this God's truth. Ladies and gentlemen, Buddy Hackett. Buddy comes walking out as the applause dies down a little. He says, you know something? You can hang meat in here. Wow. <laughs> I swear to God. Wow. I am, I am not lying to you. You know that... something? You can hang meat in here. And everybody laughed. It was a big laugh for them. I think one of the thrills of my life is hearing Mac Davis do a pretty goddamn good buddy hack it, Gilbert. I, uh, I was very... <laughs> <laughs> That totally surprised me. It was pretty good. Well, I, I hung around with him a little bit. There was a group of group of guys that that, that I knew that, uh, you know, they were, uh, you know, Rowan and Martin. Uh, Dicky Martin was a good friend of, of mine. I played a lot of golf with him in the day. Funny and, man. Oh, yeah. Now, 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 now that you're talking about Rowan and Martin, their show, of course was in the number one comedy show, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Right, absolutely. Now, you, you have a, now, Elvis, you said, was a fan of that show. Yes, he was. And uh, I know the first time I ever went uh, over to Elvis's house to play music for him, in fact, it was the, the night I played uh, Don't Cry Daddy for him. Well, I don't know how we got into it. I'm, I'm having to build up to it, but he... He, he was never alone. You were never alone with Elvis. It was just that kind of thing. But the closest I ever got to really being alone with him, well, one of the closest, was the first time I went to his house and, and saw him, you know, on his ground, uh, relaxed. And uh, we got to talking, and I played a couple of songs and this and that. And he says, you know what I want to do? You know what I want to do, what my dream is right now? And I said, what? And he said, uh, I want to be on Laugh-In. And I'm like, what? 
really? And he says, yeah, I, I would love to go and laugh in there. And he says, here's what I want to do. He said, I want to be, I want to put on that yellow raincoat, that slicker, <laughs> and, get on a, and get on a tricycle and ride that tricycle around in a circle. And you know how they speed it up like they used to do the old Benny Hill show? You know, sure. they'd speed up the camera. He said, I want to speed it up like that, and I'll have the hood up over it so you won't see who it is. And I'll go around in a circle or figure eight or something, come right up to the camera and throw my head up, throw that hood back, and go, sock it to me, baby, with his lip all curled up. And it was like, it was so cute. I laughed. I said, man, why don't you do it? You should do it. They would love that. And he said, oh, man, the colonel won't let me. And I said, what do you wow. mean the colonel won't let you? He says, hey, he just won't let me. He says it's beneath me. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you've done 50 movies <laughs> the movies you do and you think this is beneath you to go and laugh at it's a number one show classic wasn't beneath him i said it would yeah i said it would be on the the front page of every paper you know like when richard nixon did it remember that famous sure uh, horrible delivery that he gave was shock it to me oh my god (laughs) but elvis uh he did it you know with his lips all curled up shock it to me baby that would have been so big. But anyway, I remember feeling really sorry for him. That that was when I first saw that side of him where I went, you know, this guy, he could be so much more than he is. As big as he is, he could have been, you know, he never traveled overseas. He never never performed uh, any place. Farthest he went away was Hawaii, and that was the United States. Yeah. And I'm told it was because uh, Colonel Parker was wanted for something over there. Something uh, unsavory. Oh, wow. And, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. And they were afraid Interpol was after him. How about that? And wasn't Colonel Parker just like a total put on? Like he wasn't some southern good old boy. And even the nickname, the Colonel, was all made up, I heard. Well, he was a carny. He was a carny. Yeah. And he was one a of the carny. all-time carnies. He, said, he told me... Uh, in fact, I remember the, the, the night that he brought me that painting, he got to talking back there and he was holding court you know, and everybody was just hanging on his every word. But he used to travel with uh, these traveling cattle can uh, things and they were, you know, they would sell uh, snake oil and stuff. That's how he got started. And then he, he would, um, he, he carried chickens around if, uh, if uh, this is in the old days, he he uh, he uh, managed Eddie Arnold, and uh, was it Eddie Arnold? Yeah, Eddie, Eddie Arnold. Arnold. Wow, at, at, that was before that was pre Elvis. In fact, he dumped Eddie to take take uh, Elvis on at some point. But at any rate, uh, he uh, they carried chickens around with them, and they would if. Uh, Eddie got sick. Eddie was would catch a lot of times. They worked so much doing these shows back back in the south. He'd get sick and sore throat or whatever. They would put out Colonel Parker's dancing chickens. They had a hot plate that they'd put in a in a cage with the chickens, and they'd cover it with with straw and stuff. And these chickens would get in there, and they'd have, they'd have that hot plate on, and they wouldn't be able to keep their feet down. And they would dance around, and they'd play turkey in the straw. Stuff like that. Unbelievable. So he was he was a con artist. Animal I mean, abuse. From the, 
He was wow. a con artist from the get-go. He'd say, Frank, Colonel Parker can't have uh, Eddie Arnold's ill tonight, but we've, we've got uh, Colonel Parker's dancing chickens in his place. You come in here for half price and see the chickens dance. Uh, he was a, Dancing chickens, Gil. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Colonel Parker's dancing chickens. And whether the story's true or not, I don't know, but I certainly heard it from more than one person. I love ra- trying to wrap my mind around the idea that Elvis envied Artie Johnson, Gilbert. That he wanted, <laughs> he wanted to put he wanted to put on the rain slicker and ride in the and ride around on the trike. <laughs> he did. He, it's just something that, that, that would have been he, huge. But you know what? It would have been huge. That's the point. That, it would have been. And Elvis yeah. Elvis was smart in that way. It would have been uh, nobody. Everybody would have thought, "My God, he's human. This is great. He's funny." You know. Yeah, would have been right. And and I think I think Elvis was offered the part of Joe Buck in Midnight Cowboy. I never and, heard that. Uh, That's and the interesting. Colonel turned it down. That's interesting. Well, it probably yeah. Well, he was never going to let exactly him play a hustler. A, yeah, especially uh, you know that kind of hustler. It was uh, not a good idea right. for his fan base. Right, right, right. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> on the subject of legends you worked with, Mac, you got to tell us a little bit of a little memory of Jackie Gleason, and the, and the, and doing the sting too with Jackie. Jackie was a character. He was a what a brilliant uh, career that guy had, and you know I was yeah we're big fans uh, here. Yeah, uh, he was. He wasn't going to let me uh, get an edge on it. I know he loved to. Uh, uh, you know, it was later on in his career and his life, and, and he was putting the booze away pretty good in those days. And uh, he'd go to lunch. We'd, we'd have to do all his close-ups and everything in the morning because he, w- he went to lunch with the, oh, gosh, I can't remember. Well, in in L.A., he went to lunch with the guy that wrote for uh, for the Hollywood Reporter. I can't oh, uh, uh, Jim Bacon. Yes, Jim Bacon. Was big buddies yeah. of his. And yeah. they'd have a few... Uh, a few snorts before they came back. So they'd do Jackie's close-ups before. And when they'd do mine in the afternoon, a lot of times I would have to do them with his stand-in who would fall asleep. He'd been standing in for him for 20-something years. And he would fall asleep, and the director would give the lines, and I'm sitting there doing a close-ups to this feller, big heavy-duty, heavy-set guy. But when I did get to do them with Jackie, he would look me for right in the eye and wait just... He was watching the camera, and he knew, you know, the camera's coming over his shoulder on my close-up, and he's watching everybody. So just before it would come time to, to say action, he'd say, uh, you, had, uh, you had mayonnaise with your burger at lunch, didn't you? And, I'd, of course, I'd go straight to my mouth, oh, man. And then he'd say, action. And I'd go, oh, I wouldn't remember what I was supposed to say. <laughs> he'd say, "He'd say, I don't know if I can send use the language uh, on a podcast, but uh, sure you can. He'd, oh, yes, he'd look at me and he he said, uh, he's just just before they go out, he said, I don't know why they're even doing close up on you. They're not going to use any of your shit anyway, cowboy. <laughs> hey, they're not going to use any of your shit anyway, cowboy. So, but he was." And he was, I was, you know, I was in awe of the guy. I mean, he was. Of course, the great one. Amazing. The great one. In fact, I had a, they had given me a white limousine to ride in for my daily ride 
in and out. They this was a first class movie the way they did it, and it had some big stars in it. And I was way in over my head with Carl Malden and Jackie Gleason and Terry Gar. I mean, legitimate actors, you know. And uh, I had gotten extremely lucky on my first movie, North Dallas Forty, and got oh, you're very good in that film. And all, very good. Well, thank you, but. The point I'm making is I, I I got I started getting offered really good money to 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 act, and in this particular movie that was part of the deal. They gave me a, a great salary and white limousine to ride in. And within less than a week, they were asking me if I wouldn't let Jackie have that white limousine. Is he? <laughs> <laughs> he wanted the white one. He wanted the big white stretch. And I was thrilled with that because I honestly, uh, I always felt funny in, in a big white stretch or any kind of stretch limousine. So I was happy with my little regular black Cadillac limousine. But uh, that was him. He was just such a star. He could have whatever he wanted. And uh, he was uh, he was great to work with. Yeah. And can you tell us what it was like working with George Burns? George Burns was great. Uh, he, I'm trying to think of some of the things he pulled on me. He was <laughs> well. No, I can't say man. He was he was a dirty old man, George. You know that? <laughs> really, really not, not much I can not much I can use is, but I was totally impressed. Oh, you you can? No, no. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> George Goble. I worked with all the Georges. George Goble, Georgie. Uh, Lonesome George. Oh, yes. Lonesome yes. George and Spooky Old Alice. Yeah, George actually opened for me. He opened for me in Las Vegas. And, uh, there's a lot, I had several of those guys that I couldn't believe I was actually had an opening act that was one of my heroes when I was a young about guy. That. Yeah. George, uh, I don't know, he did my TV show too. I'm trying to think. I should know some George, George Goble stories. How about your pal James Garner? Well, James and I were were golf buddies. Really, we never yeah. never worked together except uh, he had me come over and keep him company one day on TV that that last uh, special the uh, series that he that he did after uh, John Ritter died. Uh, right, eight simple rules. Yeah, and yeah. I came over what? and did a little bit part, just of uh, what do you call it when you do a cameo? A cameo. Sang a little song in there and did a thing. Just he just wanted somebody to hang around with. But uh, that's the only time I really worked with him. But we were we became very close. Uh, uh, my wife and 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 I and and his family were very close. And uh, he was just uh, one of my favorite people. He was a a gentle soul, a good soul. Yeah. Uh, not on a golf course. He beat through clubs. Uh, <laughs> <three> clubs. <laughs> oh yeah, he was a loved he guy though. Clubs. And he, I tell you, Mac, I, I, and Gilbert, everybody loved the guy. I, I can't yeah. think of a more effortless and and in a way a more underrated actor than James Garner. Absolutely. Gilbert. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And he I'll could do you, drama, and he could do comedy, and he was light on his feet, and he was funny. He was great so, comic timing. Yeah. He was so not full of himself. Uh, give you an example. He had, I think. Eight Emmys, and uh, he used them for hat racks. He there you his, go. <laughs> he went, his, went in his closet. He had all his cowboy hats were just 
sitting up there hanging. And, and you look around and say, oh, my God, that thing's sitting on an Emmy. So yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of guy he was. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. I just got a, a question here from a fan, uh, Mac, from Ray Garten. Can Mac talk just a little bit about North Dallas 40, uh, your, his first experience in a, in a major film? Was that character, by the way, a, a, a Seth, uh, a little bit based on Dandy Don Meredith? Oh, it was totally based on Don Meredith. Absolutely. Okay. In fact, uh, <clears throat> after I did the movie, it had just come out, and I was doing the John Denver Ski Tournament. And I'd never met Don. Uh, and uh, I went up in the very first, you know, he wasn't made to look uh, look like a cool, like a good guy in that movie. He was likable, but in the movie. Right, right, right. Well, was written by, the book was written by sure. an ex-teammate. Absolutely. And not right. all of it was true because Don Meredith sure. was a absolute good guy. I ended up yeah. later playing a lot of golf with him. But this one day, uh, the movie had just come out. I take the the lift up to the deal, and my first race is Don Meredith. It was the John Denver ski thing, charity thing on TV. And uh, the guy that was skiing over there with me says, uh, Mac, have you met Don Meredith? And I and he didn't even know about the movie. Don Meredith looked at me. I said, hi, Don. How are you, man? Mac Davis. He said, I saw that movie. <laughs> I, what do you say? You know, I didn't say, I, you don't say, oh, great, thank you. You know, I, I, I said something like, all right, cool. You know, and he didn't say whether he liked it or not, nothing. And I just, well, yeah, cool. And I think, oh, my God. <laughs> so here's the long stage wait, stage wait, stage wait. And then he said, you were good. And that was it. That all, everything. I said, thank you, man. Oh, wow. Thank you. And uh, it was never brought up again after that. I met him later. He joined uh, Bel Air Country Club. Uh, I don't know if it was later or if I was already a member, but at any rate, I, James and I started playing golf with him. And when he was in town, when he wasn't on the road doing doing football, he was in L.A. and uh, uh, we played golf together a lot. And a super guy, very funny. That's a good movie. You got good notices for that movie, and uh, uh, I was watching Siskel and Ebert uh, uh, gave you good notices for that movie. That Janet Maslin in the New York Times gave you a rave, and uh, you were you were you were named one of the best uh, uh, promising young actors of 1979. Yeah, yeah, that's a you know it's a miracle the way things have happened with me. You know, I've I've just run into things uh, that that just worked and ran into you know just like. Uh, I met Elvis when he was when he needed somebody like that, you know. And I got in on that. Well, this is the same way with the the movie thing. Uh, I had just read the book North Dallas Forty and thought it was one of the mm-hmm. best sports books I ever ever read, and maybe the best sports book I'd ever read. It had so much humor in it, and it was just it had a lot of funny stuff in it, and, as well as a real story to tell. And. Uh, my manager, you know, uh, asked me if I'd heard of the book, and I says, "Oh yeah." And he says, uh, "Well, how'd you like to play uh, play the part of Seth Maxwell in the movie? Who was the quarterback?" And I went, oh my God, are you kidding me? I, I'd die to do that. And so uh, 
it just came out of the blue. The first movie, I'd never acted before. Uh, I'd played some football. Uh, I could throw I could throw a pretty good spiral, you know, from 10 to 20 yards. And uh, it's kind of like riding a horse. I can't, I'm not really good, but I seat a horse well. <laughs> well, anyway, I could... I could wear those pads. Uh, they found some that were pretty small football pads for me. And in fact, they were Pat Hayden's pads. Oh, Pat Hayden, the old yeah. Rams quarterback. Yeah, when he was, uh, yeah. they, they were his collegiate pads. But at any rate, that's neither here nor there. Uh, it was, you know, it just, it was something where I didn't have to clean up my accent. I had so many times I'd audition for something or, or read for a commercial or whatever. And they'd say, well, you know, can you do it a little less regional? That's a nice way of doing it. <laughs> take, take the hillbilly shit out of it. And, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and I love this character so much. And I felt like I could be him because I was from West Texas, you know, grew up in mm-hmm. Lubbock, Texas. And uh, Don was that kind of guy. He was musical himself. He used to sing in the huddle. Uh, and it just was a part that... Uh, I felt good about it. I, I tell you that part of the miracle was that I, after doing the first screen test that I even got asked back, they flew me down. I, first I did a, a, I had a meeting with Ted Kotcheff who directed it. Sure. And he's Canadian, Still with us. Canadian guy. And, uh, <laughs> isn't that amazing? Not, he's almost a lot of 90. people we're talking about are gone. Well, he's a, he's 90 years old, Ted Kotcheff. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm pushing 80 right now myself. So at any rate, uh, I go in there and he let me, uh, I, I wrote some of my own ad libs in the thing. Cause I said, you know, if I was Don Meredith, this is probably what I would have said. And I threw those in and he got a kick out of that. He thought it was funny. And he says, uh, says, I like that. I like, uh, I like actors doing that and, you know, coming up with ideas, but don't expect me to accept them all. Said I'm still a boss when I'm, well, I still didn't even have the part, and I just said, "Well, I know." I just thought it would be. I walked by that when I went in that first meeting. Michael Parks was sitting there waiting to go in, and Michael Parks at the time was a, a kind of a TV star and had done a, had a series called something Bronson. I, then I came know. Bronson, and then oh, came Bronson, that, and right. he was yes. sitting. He was sitting in there, and I went past him. I thought, "Oh my God, I'm never going to get this part because he was a, he was an actor." And uh, anyway, they call me back for a, for a, this is the funny part here, call me back for a screen test. Paramount wanted a screen test. So I was working at in Lake Tahoe at Harris Club at the time. And uh, I chartered a little plane and went came to L.A. during the day, went over to Paramount Studios, and uh, they sent me into makeup. And I go into makeup. In my little stupid head, I thought that I would be the only guy, you know, doing a screen test that day. So uh, I just uh, didn't didn't know better. So I go in, I get made up, go walking out, walked right out in the middle of the set. We were doing the scene. We're going to do the scene where uh, he pulls a jock strap over my head and makes a bad joke right. about, you know, Joe Bob loves you, which was really funny. And uh, right. Yeah, I'm still laying there with a jock strap over my head. And uh, Joe Bob was one of the characters in the movie. At any rate, uh, the idea was we were supposed to wrestle and everything. And I walk in there, and 
Nick is sitting on a on the gurney that we use for the screen test with another guy, sort of a hippie looking guy, tall guy, got a mustache. I figured he was one of the grips or something. I walk in, I go, ready for my close up, C B. And I hear Kachev go, Cut. And I turned around, I said, Cut. He says, uh, we're we're doing Sam Elliott's screen test right now. And I looked up, and the guy with the mustache was Sam Elliott. And he was doing this auditioning for the same part I was. Oh. And they were sitting there on the gurney. I just thought there was somebody that worked there, and him, and they were waiting on me to get out there to do my screen test. So with that, I still ended up getting the part. Which had, Oh, also, when we got down to the end of the scene, the script called for me to wrestle around. We were going to wrestle with each other over this jock strap he pulled over my head. Well, I turned around and grabbed him at that point in the script and shoved him so hard he went into a cleat light that was sitting there, and it fell over, and everybody went running. Nobody bothered to protect me, but everybody grabbed Nick and pulled him out of the way, and that thing fell. I mean, I literally tore up the set. <laughs> Overacting. And uh, anyway, I still ended up with the part. That's the point I'm trying to make. It was just you, you and Nolte are good. You guys, I can't imagine. Uh, I can't imagine a better tandem. You guys had a natural chemistry. It's a, it's a tough movie in some ways. He was a general, a generous uh, actor, and I didn't know what generous actor was until we did this, and I'd heard it, the term used before. And what it was was, let me do my thing, whatever. And yep. he would just he re, he would react to it. And Nick is like a lot of movie stars. They have big heads. Do you ever notice? Clark Gable had a huge head. Fill up the screen. (laughs) Spencer Tracy, all head. Nick Nick Nolte, big head. And he could react. I'd be sitting there telling some funny story or whatever, and all he would do would be like, you know, raise his eyebrows a little bit or... Or move, he could almost wiggle his ears and his scalp would go. And it showed on screen. It just was hilarious. I mean, he was the best part of of my acting was his reacting. Seriously. And uh, mm-hmm. I've always looked up to him for that and always uh, given him credit for anything that I did right. Isn't, isn't, isn't show business an amazing... It's It's been an amazing journey, Mac. I'm watching you in The Sting, too. You're, on, you're riding that roller coaster with Carl Malden. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching you, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy's a songwriter. <laughs> he's, a, he's a kid from Texas who wanted a whistle, whose dream was to hear somebody whiz, walking down the street whistling one of his songs. Yeah, now this I'm, is true. Now, now, now he's in a movie on a on a on a, he's in a you know giant screen, a big release with Jackie Gleason and Carl Malden. You're up Both there with Academy shirtless. Award and, winners. Yeah. Right, that's right. Academy uh, Award winners. You got you got to love the the absurdity in a way of 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 the journey. How far your dream took you? Well, true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. Country boy, you know. Uh, I'm trying to think of who was it that said. Uh, oh man, I don't know why they put me in this commercial. What was that guy's name? Budweiser commercial. The guy was a. He 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 was a uh, just a, not a very well known actor, a baseball player, and they put him. Oh, in Bob this, Euchre, you mean? No, not Euchre, but the, another guy that was even less less known than him. But he'd uh-huh. say, "I don't know why they asked me to do this commercial. 
Well, that's kind of like the way I felt about the movies. Here I am working with all these big, <laughs> big, huge stars and and uh, people that I've worked with in television. God, you know, Bob Hope. I did his his specials, several specials. Did Dean, yeah. did, you know, Dean Martin's Dean show. Hope. Dean did my show. I mean, I've got. I've got all these. I've got all my tapes because I actually end up owning my, my television show, and we've got all the stuff. And I've got. I'm dancing with Aretha Franklin. I'm dancing with Tina Turner. Yeah, I'm doing, singing with Tom Jones. Singing with Tom Jones. Dino. Dolly Parton, Donna Summers, yep. all these people. Liza uh, Minnelli and you sang. Liza uh, Minnelli. I actually opened for yeah. her when I was just getting started. I opened for her at the Greek Theater, and. Uh, uh, I think I opened for it in Tahoe too. The first time I played uh, played in in Lake Tahoe, so I ended up, of course, uh, headlining there later for for a lot of years. But yeah, a lot of fun. I'd a lot love of things to see those Mac shows. Yeah, well, come over to the house sometime. We'll. You know, I'll have to come to the. We'll, we'll, <laughs> I'll have to come to the we'll, house. We'll, Did you, you work with Nancy? To, my daddy used to say, we'll, me, "We'll we'll tap a keg of nails and uh, and cut a cantaloupe." So, yeah, Gilbert, we, Gilbert, we can go when the when the COVID is over. We can go see Mac, and he's in Tennessee. Oh yeah, we'll come we'll come out to the house, Mac. Yeah, come out the house. We'll we'll. You know, I, I, there's there's clips of the Mac Davis show on YouTube, but 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 uh, but few and far between. And I'd love to, I'd you love know, to see great, them. I'd love to see those, those great appearances on the Carson show and stuff like that. That was all on. Yeah, what you they did call, a million of those too. But it was kinescope. You know, and uh, that that stuff didn't last. So I, there's no, there's very, very little record of of any any of my Johnny Carson shows. And that's, I give him credit for my career. I mean, Johnny, when I started doing the Carson show, um, it's amazing what happened with you know with uh, crowds and and offers and this and that. You know, <clears throat> I just yeah the, was at the in the right place at the right time. More than I deserve. And to Doc be. gave you an idea for a song. Yes, he did. Absolutely. I was over there yeah. one day and yeah, and uh, I was uh, doing sound check before the show, and Doc walked up to me and says, "Mac, I got a great song title." And I said, well, "What is it?" And uh, Doc was a funny guy. He looked over his shoulder. He's like a little bird sometimes talking to him. Like he said, "Only if we write it together." And I said, well, we'll write it together. I can do that. Let's write it together. I said, what is it? He said, okay, but we're going to write this together. I said, you got it. You got it, Doc. He says, you got to stop and smell the roses. And when he did that, his eyebrows went up, and I heard the drums go, bam. You know, you got to stop and smell the roses. I had this song the whole chorus written before I left that night, did the show, went back to my little cubbyhole. I had a little cubbyhole at Screen Gems Music over there where I, I, had, I had gotten away from uh, Nancy Sinatra. We had uh, we had broken up, and she was suing me. And thank God for Screen Gems, Columbia Music. They uh, settled it out of court and signed me. And at any rate, I went in that thing, and I wrote that song the next day. And I called... Uh, I called Doc up and I said, Doc, I think we wrote a hit. And he says, well, let me hear it. And I sang it to him over the phone. And he says, I think we did write a hit. 
We did, didn't we? I said, yeah, we did. And uh, he'll admit to that to this day. I'm not talking out of school. That's the truth. That's great. I gave him half. You know, I would have, I would have sat here. Somebody would have come up with that title and had a hit with it, and I would have been just biting my lip over it, you know, if he hadn't given me that title because it's That's right one there. of my favorites. Yeah, and it's right there. You know, it was an old saying by that old golfer used to, uh, used to say all the time. They accused him of playing too slow, and he'd say, well, you got to take time to stop and smell the roses. Well, we got, we got a lot of listeners on this show, Mac, and I'm going to recommend a, a lot of the Mac Davis deep cuts that I like, like Rock and Roll, I Gave You the Best Years of My Life, and Hooked on Music, and Your Side of the Bed, and and uh, the, the hits just keep on coming. I, I, I urge our listeners to, to dive deep into the Mac Davis catalog, because there's so many wonderful different kinds of songs. They are all different, and aren't they? That's with with uh, crossover I'm, appeal. Yeah, well, with some crossover of them, yeah. appeal. Some of yeah. them I've done, you know, I've... I was always a little too country for pop radio and a little too pop for country radio, but I I had hits in it in all kinds of genres over the years. Just lucky to be in the right place at the right time. It's just like watching Scotty grow. You know, that song, I was keeping him for a couple of days during the week because his mother was sick, and this was right after we split up. And I've got him in my little office that I had there with Nancy Sinatra in the 9000 building on Sunset Strip. And uh, he was just five years old, and he's getting in my hair, and I'm trying to concentrate. And I finally I gave him a legal pad, a uh, brand new legal pad, which I used to write all my songs and still do. And uh, I said, "Draw Daddy a picture." I gave him a felt tip pen, and a few minutes go by, and he hands me this picture, and it's a rocket ship, and on the side of it was P R L F Q, and I said. Uh, Hey, that's a cool rocket ship, Scotty. What does that spell? And he said, Mom and Dad. And this is right why wow. we're going through a divorce. Wow. And I go, wow. P-R-L-F-Q spells Mom and Dad. And I had that song written in 45 minutes. The quickest I ever wrote a song. It just poured out. There he sits wow. with a pen and a yellow pad. He's a handsome lad. That's my boy. P-R-L-F-Q spells mom and dad. Well, that ain't too bad. That's my boy. At any rate, I happened to be uh, a friend of mine, was big friends with Bobby Goldsboro. Bobby happened to be in town at the time, recorded. He had the number one record in the world, almost. Honey. Oh, honey. Yeah. You, yeah. See the tree, how big it's grown. Friends, that been so long. Sure. It wasn't big. You know. Uh, anyway... I called my producer because I had just signed a contract with Columbia Records. And uh, I said, I got to sing you this. And I sang it over the phone to him. I used to put the phone up to my ear, hold it with my shoulder, and play the guitar and sing at the same time. And uh, sang my Jerry Fuller was the producer of it, uh, who wrote Young Girl and, and produced all their hits. But at any rate, uh, I get through with it, and he said, that's really a good song, Mac, but that's not the direction I want to go with you. He said, that sounds like a Bobby Goldsboro song or something like that. And I thought, okay, you asked for it. So I gave it, I went over to see Bobby Goldsboro at the uh, Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel and went up to his room and played it for him. And uh, it came out just in a couple of months, a few months, and he kept wanting to change it to Danny, watching Danny grow, because he had a son named Danny. 
But I, I, stuck, I, see. I stuck to my guns, and I, I knew that he had the number one record. You know, but I just, I, that was one I had to hold on to. And sure enough, uh, they put it out. And it didn't go number one, but it went to number two with, with a bullet and then uh, lost its bullet the next week. Something else, I think a Beatles song beat us out or something. But okay. didn't matter. But like I said, right place, the right time. Just lucky. I'm just the luckiest guy that, you know, like who would have known that, that Lisa, my wife, now of, of 36 years going on, and we've been together 40. Who would have thought that she would be there that night, you know, that I would be there the one night that she decided to come to the Playboy Mansion and that Shel Silverstein would be there too. I end up with a it's wife been- of a life, you know, <laughs> a, a life, lifelong wife <laughs> and a hit, hit song both. And so, you know, the, I, well, I, I think you're, I think you're too humble. The author of the song, the composer of the song, it's hard to be humble is a little too humble. Yeah. I, 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 ironically. A, there's a funny story on that. I mean, that was right after I had come up with the title while we were doing, they had said something about how Don always sang in the, uh, the huddle. And did I have anything that would fit in the huddle scene when we were right after we, uh, we uh, catch that touchdown pass. Because Don would sing in the huddle. So I thought, oh, think of something. And I came up with the title, It's Hard to Be Humble. I thought, well, I'll write something for that. Well, they decided not to use it, not to use a song in the movie. There was too much going on to break the mm-hmm. spell. So as soon as we wrapped, I had to open the next night at Harris in Lake Tahoe. And uh, I go there, and I'm still on movie time. So I get up the next morning, 5 a.m., and I'm just wide awake because we'd been doing night shoots and getting there, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff. And just bad timing. You know, you, you, it's bad hours, tough hours doing movies. So at any rate, I walk around. I'm, I'm in the star suite in that hotel. And I, I say that on the record. I actually put that part in there, a little talking part. Yeah. But it's true. I was I was walking around this great big huge room. I used to tell people it looked like it was decorated by Shelley Winters and Sammy Davis Jr. on a bad night. Anyway, <laughs> 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 it had a hey, what I mean it was huge, just big, beautiful, uh, by some terms, but everywhere was uh, smoke mirrors and mm-hmm. and uh, gold lame and you know, all that kind of stuff, gilded gold furniture and all. And I had no clothes on. I remember this. So I was walking around in there and I looked, I caught myself in the mirror, standing there in the middle of this big old room. And I just said, hard to be humble, ain't it, boy? Hard to be humble. Well, I said, that's what I'll do. There wasn't nobody I could call or talk to. So I just sat down and wrote a song. I wrote, it's hard to be humble. I had the first verse and chorus written. And that night on stage, I did it live. The band they hadn't even heard it. And it's such an easy little song. They just kind of joined in with it. And literally, I saw people poking each other in the ribs like women poking their husbands and pointing at him, ah. pointing at their husband. And I was singing it, and they, the guys were banging their beer bottles on the table. And they were singing along with it before I had even finished writing it. And I knew that it, thing it was going to come out. It did. It, 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 I started singing it at uh, concerts, and I wish people could have. We ended up, uh, we tried to cut it. At, you know, I was playing for, for 
state fairs where we'd have 30,000, 50,000 people at some of these places, huge audiences. And I'd have mm-hmm. all 35,000 people singing along with It's Hard to Be Humble. And it was something to hear. It really was. <laughs> I'd even, I'd make, I'd make all these state troopers sing along and be down standing in front of the stage to protect you. I'd walk, I'd ask the audience, I'd, I'd go and stand behind them and I'd say, is he singing? And they'd go, no. And I'd say, you better sing, boy. We'll be out here all day. And then I'd end up holding a mic down and the state troopers would be singing that song. It was just one of those wow. kind of songs that uh, everybody's yeah, on still. It's, it's got a sing-along feel and it's something everybody can relate to. Everybody everybody knows an egomaniac. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you something <laughs> even, yeah, and something <laughs> even funnier. Uh, way, way later, after the song was a hit, I realized that I'd stolen the song. I was out on a, I, I, and there's nothing that can be done about it because it's public domain. I was playing golf and I was whistling. It's hard to be humble, and I go, so it was the Mexican hat dance. <laughs> So we probably should we probably should stop on that right there because that's exactly oh, that's hilarious. You know, Mac, you got to write a book. Well, you I'm gonna in, write a me- that you mentioned it. I'm in the process of doing that right now. I'm oh, trying. good. You got a lot of you got to write a memoir. Well, there's a, a lot of funny stuff in my life and a lot of heavy duty stuff. I've I've lived it. I really have. I've lived a charmed life, and uh, uh, I'm thankful for what I've got. Well, we, we thank you for sharing some of that with us today and our listeners. And we have to thank Lisa for getting you all set up on the tech. And we have to thank Kyle, Kyle Whitney, yeah, for, 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 for making this possible. Don't know what I'd do without him because I, I have technical stuff, uh, computers, and, you know, uh, uh, this is kind of stuff I just, you know, don't know nothing. But Brother Dave Gardner is a comedian, used to say, Get away from that wheelbarrow, boy. You don't know nothing about machinery. <laughs> well, that's my life. Uh, you and Gilbert I, have that in common. I don't, yeah, there you go. I don't know nothing about what I'm doing. I just do it. and I've been lucky enough to find a way to make a living with it and support my family and, uh, and get on shows like this, which are a lot of fun. Well, we thank you. This, this was a good ride. Gil, Gil, do you have anything else for this man? Ah, uh, what is it that makes some people songwriters? What kind of a talent is that? It's what? How does your brain? I cannot. Work? I cannot explain that. I've had. I've been asked that question a million times, but I've. I, I actually wrote a song, uh, which is not out yet, uh, because I've answered. I've tried to answer the question so many times. Yeah, and I, I won't sing the song with you because my guitar is not picking up on the mic or anything. But whoops, I just oh, oh I touched the keyboard. See, I don't know anything about this stuff. <laughs> it's okay. I, just don't turn a, that phone off. I've been asked the question so many times that one day I just said, well, you know what? I'm going to write a song about. That. I'm going to answer that question. And I've slaved over the thing for for the longest time. Um, I recorded it myself, and I, I'm probably going to put it out here. Soon, I don't. I, I'm not happy with right yet, but the chorus is title is worse. But it, it's about a, a 
somebody's asking you what you know where songs come from, which is just what you just asked me. Well, here's yeah. here's the answer that this voice comes to me in the night and tells me this because I went to bed thinking about that that question, and I woke up and wrote. They come from poets and balladeers, age-old stories passed down through the years, from a little baby's laughter, from a lover's tears, from good old boys and girls after one too many beers. And sometimes God just whispers in your ear, and that's where songs come from. Wow. That's beautiful. That is a great answer. Fantastic. Thank you. Mac, this was a thrill for us. We had a blast. Well, it was fun for me, too. It really was. And, and, uh, uh, I hope you do I hope you do great. Because I listened, of course, knowing that I was going to come in and do this. I listened to some of the, uh, what do you call it, the blogs? The podcast. The podcast. I was, <laughs> that's right. I get blogs we had and your podcasts. Mixed up. We, we had your friend Jimmy <laughs> Webb on here, and your and your pal Paul Williams, and some of those other people. And Bender was here. Yeah, Jim. Jim called me the other day, and uh, it was so good yeah, to hear from him. Yeah, he he was thinking that maybe me and him ought to go on the road sometime together and do our thing. Just just him on a keyboard and me on a guitar. And uh, I can still believe it or not. You'd never know it by this uh, interview, but uh, I still can carry a tune pretty good when I. Get out of this. No, you sounded great. Yeah, well, I get out from the hibernation here. Gilbert, how great would it be to go on to go see Jimmy Webb and Mac Davis live together? Oh, be a dream. my God. Be a dream. Well, you know, terrific. we're telling the history of show business with this show, Mac, as I explained to Kyle, and, and, uh, and you're a big part of it. It's almost impossible to get our arms around your career, even in 90 minutes. Well, thank you. you. You've entertained the hell out of us for decades. We, we do appreciate it. I think I'm going to... I think I'm going to title my book, The Truth, The Whole Truth, Nothing But The Truth, and Other Lies by Mac Davis. <laughs> That'll work. And by the way, Max Burnett sends his best. Oh, my your director, Your director on Possums. Oh, bless his heart. How's, how's yes. he doing? He's was he good. on he's show? Friend, you know, he's an old, dear, dear old friend of mine from, yeah. from, uh, from, from sitcom days. Possum was, he, Possums was a cute little movie. It was... Uh, you know, it was what it was. It was, it yeah. was kind of fun. but uh, Yeah, it's a sweet film. They made it fun. Yeah. Well, Gil, we, we, we have to say goodbye oh, to this okay. lovely man. We, we, we could spend hours with him. Okay, so this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we've been talking to one of the luckiest and most talented people in show business, Mac Davis. You know, Mac, you got off the hook because we've had on this show Tommy James, Paul Williams, Richard Marks, Kenny Loggins, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, a bunch of other people, and Gilbert sang with all of them. Oh. But because but, but but because now we're doing it over Zoom and we we don't have the connections and and we can't sync everything up. You're off the hook, so you have to come back so Gilbert can sing uh, either "Stop and Smell the Roses" or "Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me." <laughs> I want to I want to hear I want to hear him sing. It's hard to be humble because that's that's right up. That's okay. Perfect. We'll do that one. It's all we'll that's do, it's all tongue, tongue in cheek. We'll do that tongue one next time. Baby. You, do, right, you, dodged you, a, you dodged a bullet this time. 
So thank Super. you, Mac. This thank was you. Thank a big, you. A kick. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, mister, where you going in such a hurry? Don't you think it's time you realized There's a whole lot more to life than work and worry All the sweetest things in life are free And they're right before your eyes But you got to stop and smell the roses You got to count your many blessings every day morning in the city Well, did you spend some time with your family Did you kiss your wife and tell her that she's pretty Did you take your children to your breast Love them tenderly You got stopped Take a walk through the forest Stop and dream a while among the trees Well, you can look up through the leaves Right straight to heaven And you can almost hear the voice of God In each and 